Take our Bibles now and turn to Exodus chapter 12 and 13. As you can tell in these sermons on the Exodus and the last plague, um, your servant is uh, challenged by seeking to bring things together here and all in one spot. There's, um, there's, there's breaks in the narratives about the plague and then about the institution of the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread and so on. And so I... I find the passages that pertain to one subject especially and seek to, uh, to speak on them. So we have two uh, chapters here, Exodus 12, first of all, verse 29 through 42, uh, that pertain to the beginning of the Exodus. Um, we're not quite to the Red Sea yet, but we're getting there, and Israel is getting there. But Exodus 12, 29 through 42, first of all, let's read that, God's word. It came to pass at midnight that the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of livestock. So Pharaoh rose in the night, he, all his servants, and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where there was not one dead. Then he called for Moses and Aaron by night and said, Rise, go out from among my people, both you and the children of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Also take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone and bless me also. And the Egyptians urged the people that they might send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, having their kneading bowls bound up in their clothes on their shoulders. Now the children of Israel had done according to the word of Moses, and they had asked from the Egyptians articles of silver, articles of gold, and clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they granted them what they requested. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. Then the children of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides children. A mixed multitude went up with them also in flocks and herds, a great deal of livestock. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough which they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were driven out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared provisions for themselves. Now the sojourn of the children of Israel who lived in Egypt was 430 years. And it came to pass at the end of the 430 years on that very same day, It came to pass that all the armies of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It is a night of solemn observance to the Lord for bringing them out of the land of Egypt. This is that night of the Lord, a solemn observance for all the children of Israel throughout their generations. That's as far as we'll read in chapter 10. Now the last part of chapter 13, verses 17 through 22. Then it came to pass when Pharaoh had let the people go that God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest perhaps the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by way of the wilderness of the Red Sea. And the children of Israel went up in orderly ranks out of the land of Egypt. And Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had placed the children of Israel under solemn oath 
saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here with you. So they took their journey from Succoth and camped in Etham at the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, so as to go by day and night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night from before the people. Thus far we read this account of the beginning of the exodus of the people of God. Beloved, we see here this fulfillment of the 10th plague. It has come. Israel is spared the killing of the firstborn of men and beast because of that lamb's blood on their doorposts. The Passover has been celebrated, as we saw this morning, and now they're free to go. In fact, so free to go, they are almost pushed out by Pharaoh and the people who are desirous that they go, and God himself is superintending the whole business, for he has said, let my people go, and they shall go. Beloved, we want, as we consider this word of the Exodus, to consider our deliverance, of course. We've been doing that even before we got to this point, even before we got to the Exodus. A sermon has to be always about Jesus, and Jesus is our Exodus. And so even while Israel's being prepared, we're reminded in gospel light of the thing that awaits them, and it has been good, it has been sweet, we have been edified in the gospel all along. But now we consider this advance in this revelation of the gospel to Israel, ourselves in the gospel light, and what this means for us. And as we consider these things, and there's seven things I want us to ponder on, I want us to be uh, those who would ponder, ponder the things of Israel's exodus, even follow them as they go, but then wind up going with them. I want, however, us to be those who are thoughtful and reflective about our place, about where we're at. Israel here is going from one place to another, one land of bondage to the wilderness and all the way to to Canaan. We have to ask ourselves, according to the type that's fulfilled in Exodus and so on in the land of promise, where are we? Do we find ourselves in Egypt? Do we find ourselves liking the things of Egypt? Are we in the wilderness? Or are we in the promised land? Where do the New Testament believers fit in? Where do we in this world fit in? as a people of the Exodus, for that we surely are. But sometimes we can wonder, and sometimes we can wonder if God has even let us go because our sins are so great. Lord, we, we want to pray to the Lord that he would fill us with truth, the truth of him, of his son, and of our place in the kingdom as we consider the things of the beginning of the Exodus of Israel. First thing we want to review here and be established in is the picture. These different points, and the first is the picture, kind of reorient us to this uh, wonderful message of the gospel in the Exodus. We've been considering in great detail the 
place called Egypt. That's a picture of sin. The bondage of sin is what we find ourselves in in Adam. Romans 6, for example, reminds us that we were slaves to sin. We were in Egypt, as the people of God were, bound to serve another Pharaoh, who is a picture of the king of this world, the prince of this world, we should say, as Jesus does even the devil. And so they were in this place, and they were helpless there, but now there's this advance in the picture. We get to see more of the picture of the Old Testament, not just sin and not just bondage and guilt and Pharaoh and Satan and all these things, but now there's an exodus, and that's a picture of our exodus from sin and unto the service of God. This is a, a happy a happy sermon and happy context in the book of Exodus. The people of God are, are finally delivered. It's taken 12 or so chapters, but they're finally delivered. The, the narrative has been uh, very wisely set up by God and inspired by God to include it all, include the necessary revelations of God to Moses, his calling, his calling out of, out of the promised land to learn humility in, in Midian, and then to come back and all of these plagues, oh, we can be sick of them after all of these plagues, I suppose, and the plagues themselves become like the plagues themselves to dwell on these things and these judgments of God. But now here, the happy thing, the people of God are going out of Egypt. And this, of course, this deliverance from Egypt is this deliverance from sin and this whole thing as well is a picture of how we are delivered. It's by the blood, the blood of the Lamb, the blood of Jesus. It's through faith that's given. It's by the sovereign grace of God, by the blood as a foundation for the accomplishment of salvation, by faith as an instrument whereby the application of the blood is made. Even the blood is sprinkled on the doorposts of the people. In fact, we do read in, this, uh, in the New Testament how faith was so instrumental in the deliverance of the people of God. The foundation was, was Christ, of course. But in Hebrews 11, we read of Moses. By faith, he was born, verse 23, when he was born, he was hidden three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's commandment. It was just power working already back then. And then by faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures, the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. By faith, he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who was invisible. And by faith, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood, lest he, should, he who destroyed the firstborn should touch them. And then we read later, by faith, they passed through the Red Sea as through dry ground. So God in Christ, working faith, his sovereign grace at work in the whole business of this deliverance, Here's slaves, after all, set free, and they don't lift a finger. They don't do a thing either to merit anything with God. They have no power with the Egyptians. They themselves are rather Egyptian-like after 400 years mingling with the people and learning the way of the heathen as they ought not to have, forgetting that they were sons of Abraham, the father of believers, 
and thinking rather it's not such a bad thing to, just to be a son of the good old boys and all of the ones of the culture of the Egyptians. By grace they were saved in Christ through faith and that alone. Indeed, this time, as we read, Pharaoh commands the people whom he once commanded to stay or only to go on his terms. He commands the people in chapter 12 and verse 31 and 33, Rise and go out from among my people, both you and the children of Israel. Go and serve the Lord as you have said, and so on. And then the Egyptians, they urged the people that they might send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we shall all be dead. In fact, we read in Psalm 105, the Egyptians were glad they were going. They're happy. Now think of it. Their whole land is destroyed. They are decimated. Their crops are gone. Their, their livestock is just uh, is, is killed off or diseased and and. They, they are shaking in their boots because this God of Israel is a God who's obviously against them. And so you have this. But we need to know as well that the basic picture here in the salvation of the people, in the reason they're saved through the blood and through faith and by grace is it's for God. It's all about God. The exodus is the exodus of God. Salvation is salvation of God. God is the one who sheds the blood. He's the one who uh, is the one who causes the sprinkling to be had, and then he is the salvation of the people. And so it's for his glory and the glory of his son, because not until the blood is shed, not until that lamb's blood is shed can they go, but when the lamb's blood is shed, then they go. That's the key. That unlocks the kingdom, as it were, and unlocks the, the, the handcuffs from the Israelites, and they can go. God is glorified in this wonderful break, and it's a clean break. There is something here that's so important for us to learn about the doctrine of salvation. Israel goes, and they go clean out of Israel, of, of Egypt, clean out. They don't stay there at all. All for a little bit, they are in the wilderness. Then they leave the Red Sea. And they part, go through the Red Sea, and they, they leave Egypt forever. That's just like God's justification of us. When we're declared righteous, God continues that declaration in the courts of heaven, and it stands forever. When we are called, it's a powerful calling if we be the elect of God. When there is grace, grace is irresistible, as we say. There's a power here over Pharaoh and over the gods. There is also the power of the relentless sanctification of God. Oh, beloved, you think you're a work in progress? True. But your God's work in progress, his progress working on you, shall not be denied. Progressive sanctifications, what we believe. Besides that... When they depart from Egypt, it's like glory had begun. And that's what happens when we're saved by Jesus' blood. And when we appropriate that by faith, this glory is begun. This light is shining in our midst. This beginning of this saving presence of God within the glories of heaven. 
In the destruction also of the idols, there is this declaration that God alone is God. We could elaborate more on that glory of God picture here. So we have this fulfillment of the gospel through the blood of Christ and the faith that he works and by sovereign grace to the glory of God. That's the first thing, the picture. Got that all set? That's what the Exodus is all about in light of the New Testament. All about God and Jesus revealed. We're delivered from sin. Second, this is according to promise. The promise is mentioned here as being fulfilled. The promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. In chapter 12, 41 of Exodus, we read that the sojourn of Israel who lived in Egypt was 430 years and it came to pass at the end of the 430 years on that very same day. It came to pass that all the armies of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. And then verse 51, it came to pass on that very same day that the Lord brought the children of Israel out of the land according to their armies. Beloved, here's God being faithful to his word. He had said to Abraham way back in Genesis 15, I'm going to, the people, your seed is going to go into the land uh, that they know not which, and it's Egypt. They're going to come out after 400 plus years, and that's what's happening right here. Second thing, and second way we learn of God's promise is Joseph, who takes the lead. Remember, and we read of this in chapter 19 of our text, in verse, uh, chapter 13, verse 19, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had placed the children of Israel under solemn oath, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here with you. You see here, what they're doing is the, the people of God taking the bones of Joseph are fulfilling their promise and the promise of the brothers of Joseph to take up his bones But not only that, they are hearing Joseph say something of God's promise, which which is that God would care for them and surely bring them up from this place. So the promise is being fulfilled here in the people of God's being faithful to their own oath that they made in in their forefathers to Joseph. And this points them to God's promise. Another way that the promise is being revealed here and fulfilled here is the fruitfulness of the people. There is an a, a, uh, account given in chapter 12 and verse 38, or 37 and 38, that the children of Israel were at that time 600,000 men on foot, besides children, uh, children, and a mixed multitude went up with them, also in flocks and herds and a great deal of livestock. Now, this is the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. He would be a father of many nations and of many people. Many would be blessed in him. And not only are there 600,000 men, there's probably uh, women and children so that it numbers 2 million strong after seven, uh, 400 years. From 70 who went down to Egypt, there's now some 2 million strong. And all along, there has been this miracle noted duly by the Egyptians of the progress and the multiplication of the people of God. They had thrived in the land of Canaan. They become a a force to be reckoned with, according to Pharaoh, even though their God fought for them. They were nothing in themselves. But I say this is, again, an account of God's word being fulfilled. This mixed multitude as well 
is a promise that in Abraham all the nations would be blessed. Now, we meet with the mixed multitude at various times in the history of the wilderness wanderings. And most of those times, if not all of them, the mixed multitude is a part of the rebellious group. They side with the rebellion, the, the, the different rebellions at this time. They were either Egyptians or other national, others of other nations who sided with the Israelites wanting to, to follow them and their God who was obviously very powerful and who could overthrow all the gods of Egypt and all of the Egyptians too. And so their faith is questioned and they, like the Israelites, at best had very weak faith. They were somehow joined with the people of God. So you have the fulfillment of a gospel picture and also the fulfillment of the promise. Secondly, we, or thirdly, we have this amazing account of their plundering the Egyptians, the Israelites plundering the Egyptians. In chapter 12 and 35 and verse 36, we read that the children of Israel had done according to the word of Moses. They'd asked from the Egyptians articles of silver, articles of gold, and clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they granted them what they requested. So they plundered the Egyptians. Now, beloved, this may not seem like a very significant thing. After all, the Egyptians were just glad to be rid of the people. So, okay, you can have this. But this has been something that the Bible has been talking about ever since, in fact, Genesis chapter 15 and verse 14 where God said that the people uh, would be judged, the, the, the nation whom Israel would serve, God would judge, and afterward Israel would come out with great possessions. That was part of the promise. They would come out with great possessions. We see that revealed and fulfilled in Exodus chapter 12. Besides that, in Exodus chapter 3, and verses 19 through 22, we also read of this very same thing. Exodus 3, 19 through 22. But I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go, no, not even by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders, which I will do in its midst. And after that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And it shall be when you go that you shall not go empty-handed. But every woman shall ask of her neighbor, namely of her who dwells near her house, articles of silver, articles of gold, and clothing. And you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. And then just one other uh, passage, chapter 11 and verses 1 through 3. The Lord said to Moses, I will bring uh, one more plague on Egypt and on Pharaoh and on Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will surely drive you out of here altogether. Speak now in the hearing of the people and let every man ask from his neighbor and every woman from her neighbor articles of silver and articles of gold. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. And so here is this, this thing that's brought up now and it's come to pass now in their exodus. They Israelites plunder the Egyptians. Now, I want to dwell a little bit on this because there is no little 
discussion about this, uh, not only today, but there has been no little discussion about this history long. This idea that Israel goes and plunders the Egyptians. There been many viewpoints on this, but I wanted first to say that this theme of Israel being in a bad place or some of the Israelites being in a bad place, maybe at a time of famine and so on, and then coming out with a lot of substance as a result of it, that's a common theme in the Old Testament. For example, there... um, was the case that uh, Abraham, remember? Abraham and Sarah, they took refuge in Egypt in a famine, and they left with substance, Genesis 12 and 13. Then Jacob flees Padanaram with sizable flocks in Genesis chapter 31. He comes out, and he's greatly blessed with substance. The Philistines capture the Ark of the Covenant, And then they're plagued by God, so they set the ark on a cart and they send it back with great golden treasures, 1 Samuel 6, 8 and 11. Besides that, when the Jews return from exile, King Cyrus gives gold and silver vessels that Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple, Ezra chapter 1, 7 through 11, and to name only other one place, There's a future exodus prophesied when the nations which afflict Israel themselves become plunder for those who serve them. The prophet Zechariah says in chapter 2 and verse 9 of his prophecy. So Israel plundering its own persecutors or being those who plunder the world from which they are delivered of which Israel or Egypt is a type. Now, what this has occasioned is discussion amongst theologians, some great, some small, but many of them, that there is, it's seemingly here, a text which says that here is a way that we relate to the world. There's a lot of Egypt gold and silver and clothing that we can take with us as Christians and learn uh, from the heathen even. Augustine, St. Augustine of the 4th and 5th century, in fact, was one of the first to bring this up. This plundering of the Egyptians by Israel, he said, was, for example, our learning from Plato and other philosophers who have a bit of gold in them and who have learned to find in the ore of this earth things of God and of eternity. And so we can draw from their thinking, even if it's wrong-headed, there's something we can learn from them and we can learn to appreciate the gospel more by these great thinkers. It's the old question that another father, Tertullian, asked, what has Athens to do with Jerusalem? What has Egypt to do with Israel? Well, it's said here that Israel plunders Egypt. And in other places, that seems to be what's going on whenever they're delivered from captivity of one nation or another or oppression by that one nation. Seems then that you have a a foundational text here and and maybe there's another text and they find it in Luke chapter 16 and verse 9 where we are called to make friends of the mammon of unrighteousness so that we can learn from the culture, from the science 
from the business practices and those who have doctorates in, in psychology and so on. We can learn um, to, uh, to entertain with the best of them and apply them all to church, and we can become those who are, have the best of both worlds as it is. We have the best of heaven, we have the best of God, we have the best of the gospel, we have the best of Pharaoh, we have the best of the, of the great philosophers and the, and the great thinkers and, and the, the great movers and shakers of this world. Passages like this and this kind of interpretation have been the impetus for many a church growth movement. So in the early 80s, I think it was, and the church growth movement took off, there was the strategies that could be learned after the business models of those who go to the U of Penn or whatever it is to have the church be such that it is appealing and it can sell its gospel even by using the gold of Egypt, the things of Egypt, the silver of Egypt, the clothing of Egypt. Oh, beloved, so that's really what's here, and I bring this to your attention because we ought to be informed about these things because it's very real. It's the question we ask and our children ask sometimes. How should we relate to this world, really? What is our involvement with the world? I mean, the wicked world that produces good things, maybe some good music and some good songs and so on, good programs on the television. Should it be that with the gold and the silver, and, with, uh, and we plunder Egypt and we take the gold and silver. Well, with that, we also take Star Wars and we take the Chronicles of Narnia and we, we take uh, the other uh, novels and War and Peace and we learn something about them, about the war and the peace that is the gospel. Is there a gospel? Not only according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but according to Lucas or according to Peanuts and according to all the people who have been very popular in this age, and we live in this world, what is the relationship of Athens and Jerusalem? The church and the world, Egypt and Israel, we believers and our comrades at work, our comrades at Calvin College, comrades, bad word, our acquaintances. Well, beloved, it needs not be pointed out, and even as we're looking at this and maybe shaking our heads, there's the perils of the plunder of Egypt, aren't there? Perils in plundering Egypt. Perils, challenges in using the things of the world and not being worldly at the same time, even with regard to the quantity of the things we use, certainly with regard to the quality say, of the entertainment we enjoy or we think we should enjoy or be free to enjoy. There's perils of this. After all, the very same gold, the very same gold that they took out of Egypt, which they plundered from the Egyptians, was used to make the golden calf. Think of that. The very same raw material became an idol. And this is what can happen to us, doesn't it? Or can it? And so we can go on and on about this, but I won't. An answer, though, is quickly to be had. What is it? If we are going to be a people of the Exodus, 
How is it that there is this plunder of the Egyptians which we can enjoy and, and which God would even have us to enjoy? For I believe that's his will here. And it's not God doing an immoral act, robbing people. No. It's God commanding of the Egyptians through the Israelites. That's really, it's not a borrowing sort of word. That's an improper translation. It's their asking or even commanding the Egyptians to to give them these things. It's God causing his own purpose to be known. And part of the humiliation of these Egyptians who had despised God in despising his people and abusing them, part of the humiliation will be that all their wealth is taken away, or much of it. Some people even imagine 1,000 trillion tons of gold was taken out of Egypt at that time. I don't know about that. but Some even would even insist that there be reparations that the Jews should pay to the Egyptians. Go figure. But there's a discussion, and there needs to be, about the relationship of Christ and culture, of the church and culture. We and our children, raising our children, and what we watch on television and, and all of these things. What is, excuse me, what is it? For you see, we, we don't want to mar and mess up and muddy the distinction between us and Egypt. If we're laden with the goods of Egypt, and if it's, that's a, a good and legitimate thing, we can receive these good gifts, even if it's from heathen. Well, we don't want to use this hedonistically or heathenically. We want to use this as the children of God would use things. And that's the answer. Plain and simple, the answer is, Plunder the Egyptians, use this world, whatever you're going to do, but for the service of God. If that's your motive, you can't go wrong. That is the word of God. Receive with thanksgiving the good things of the earth from wherever, accept the lottery, that's illegitimate, and accept you rob it from people. But receive with thanksgiving the thing that God gives, for it's sanctified by the word of God in prayer. And you are in this world, but you're not of this world. You're not of this world, and you are in this world. And there are good gifts that you can use only. Don't let them use you. There's a wonderful way that we're led into the truth, the clear truth of our being the people of the Exodus and plundering Egypt In Exodus chapter 25, verses 1 through 7, here's what happened to the gold and the silver and the badger skins. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, this is when they're at the mountain, speak to the children of Israel that they bring me an offering from everyone who gives it willingly with his heart, you shall take my offering. And this is the offering which you shall take from them. Here it is, ready? Gold, silver, and bronze. Blue, purple, and scarlet thread, fine linen and goat's hair, ram skins dyed red, badger skins and acacia wood, oil for the night light and spices for the anointing oil and for the sweet incense, onyx stones and stones to be set in the ephod and in the breastplate, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. That's what Egypt is for. 
The service of the Lord, that's why you receive what you receive. To serve God with. And that's the, the whole way through this, this often uh, difficult question of how to relate to the world. Beloved, to relate to the world. And not, first of all, even that the world could bless you with all that it gives and all of its things. But so that you can worship and be a blessing to the world. You have far more to give to the world than it has to give to you. And watch out. The heathen with all their goodies and all they would give you and all their thinking and all their perspective may be logical after a fashion. They may may say that we're for society's good. But watch it. Just think, for example, of the, the good sayings they come up with. That is, the Lord helps those who help themselves, something like that. That's not in the Bible. It's even blasphemous and heretical. The Lord helps those who help themselves. Or cleanliness is next to godliness. You won't find that in the Bible either. But you learn that, don't you, from, from all around us. It's, it's everywhere you, you see and hear and so on. If you read anything, be careful. May the word of God be a great blessing for you. And all of its blessings, may you really and truly enjoy the spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Okay. Third, plunder. Fourth, piety and the way of piety. I'm speaking here of what the Bible says in the Exodus chapter 13 and verses 17 through 18, where it's said that the Lord guides the people this way came to pass when Pharaoh let the people go that God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. That would have been a straight shot up north to the land of promise, through the land of Philistia. He didn't lead them that way. For God said, lest perhaps the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by way of the wilderness of the Red Sea. Now, this is so important for piety, isn't it? Piety's way is not the short way. God will have a people that goes to heaven and not goes the short way. God will have a people that goes the way that can, they can resist sin. The New Testament says he will not, uh, with a temptation, not also give you a way of escape. He will. And this is what God is doing here. He knows the little faith of the people and that when the Philist, they meet the Philistines, Uh, they're going to come up against a warrior-like people and they're not going to have the faith and the courage to to stand against them. They're going to run back into Egypt and so God leads them the other way and God knows best. So God takes the long way, we would say, but it is the straight way to heaven. It's the way of piety. It's the way of our reliance on God. It's the way of our self-denial. It's the way of our saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner, God, feed me till I want no more because I have no other way of of living besides you give me to eat and to drink of my Lord Jesus. It's called piety's way. Children learn that. We need to learn that. Piety's way. It's the way of one word, waiting on the Lord. That's what it is, waiting. 
How often does, do parents say to the children, let's wait, just wait. And we say to our young people, just wait. God will lead you to a mate and a mate to you. Just wait on the Lord. And we've never seen God to forsake us. He's always guiding us. And that is so biblical. Uh, throughout the Bible, we read of this. Jeremiah chapter 10, for example, and verse 23. O Lord, I know the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man who walks to direct his own steps. Yes, it's in God. And this is what's happening here. It's not in Israel to direct its own steps. It would go right there to the promised land. And Israel's not ready to go, and the Philistines' cup of iniquity is not yet full. They're not ready to be destroyed by God. And then you have uh, another place in the Proverbs, for example, in chapter 16 and verse 9, speaks to this. A man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. You know all of that, beloved. This is God leading. This is the way of piety. It's the sure way of holiness and happiness with God. And then this, the fifth point, presence of God. The presence of God is brought out remarkably here in verses 21 and 22. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way, by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so as to go by day and night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night from before the people. This is amazing. It's the guidance of God, to be sure. It will be for the duration of the wilderness, as far as we know, so that as long as there was manna, and even longer then, uh, there was this presence of God at day and at night. The presence of God would be in that Shekinah glory that would, would habitate over and hover over the Ark of the ta- Tabernacle. And then it would move when God wanted them to move and stop when God said stop and go there when God said go there. Wouldn't that be nice to have such a cloud of, of God's presence and such an unmistakable, clear revelation of his will as that fire at night? Wouldn't that be nice, we say, like having Jesus himself in Old Testament form come and say here and, and point the way out to us? And beloved, we have another even greater thing than these Old Testament pictures with the Word of God. And not only that, the Word of God within. And God is teaching us here in this typical presence that He's this God. And wherever we are, and if we're an Old Testament believer, He's there to lead us. And if we're a New Testament believer, we may not have this amazing presence of God and this miraculous presence of God, but we have the presence of God in Christ We have this God with us in Jesus, in his spirit, and this word is this living word, and the spirit works through this word to guide us. And every word is something to teach us by. And the children now often ask, and the young people maybe, where does it say that in the Bible? Where does it say I should come home at 10 o'clock, or I shouldn't be out past midnight, nothing good happens after midnight? Well, the parent says, the wise old parent says, it's in the Bible because God says what is wise there. And God depicts the workers of iniquity as workers of darkness. Nothing good happens in the cloak of darkness in this world. And and we, excuse me, we know wisdom is taught. 
by principles in the Bible, as well as precepts, and as well as individual texts. Presence of God, do you know that? Do you know that? Do we know the presence of God? This is the result of the Exodus. God is with them. They go, and they're not going alone. God is leading them. God is with them and guiding them. And Moses is mediating this presence of God. He's this presence of God in this, in this Moses. What a great thought. People of the Exodus, we go out of Egypt, out of this world, yet in this world, but with God. And that's the most important thing. Well, the people's response, that's the uh, sixth point. I want to point out, first of all, that chapter 12 and verse 27 reminds us that when the Passover is instituted and God is announcing the 10th plague through Moses, the first response of the people was they bowed their heads and worshipped. And then the children of Israel went away and did so, just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. Finally, the people of God are listening. They're sensing the work of God. They're sensing that God is real. And the work of God and faith is coming out of them. They worship God. And then they're ready when he says, now go. Chapter 12 and verses 33 and 39 speaks of their being in haste. They take the dough that's unleavened and, and they're ready, their sandals on their feet and, and they're moving, they're going to be going exactly when God says to go. They're ready and it's not just helter-skelter and a crowd, uh, crowd that goes, they're an orderly army in fact that comes out. Chapter 12, 20, 51, Israel came out according to their armies and chapter 13, 18, there's these armies the children of Israel went up in orderly ranks out of the land of Egypt. Here's a beautiful picture of a response. They worship, they're ready, and they go out and they go where God says, at his command, following Moses the mediator, following the words of God through him, and they are going out, the slaves, the abject slaves, now the dignified people of God, now those with honor, now those, the prophets and the priests and the kings. They will not be ashamed of their status and of their God and of grace. So us, I leave you with this final point. For pondering pious pilgrims today. Here's a question I began with, beloved. Where are we? Where are you? When we deal with a location change, a change of home, as these people were, change of homes, change of status, and so on, and to answer the question as we reflect on them and their move, well, where are we? We are people of the Exodus. That's why we come here. We're delivered through Christ. But the different places where Israel found itself, we can wonder if 
we're finding ourselves there too. Even as we rise up from the supper, this people as they're taken out of Egypt, they're going to the promised land. What a blessed people. But how is it like them, we, we hanker after the things of Egypt? And we take that verse, the Egyptians were plundered and the Israelites plundered the Egyptians and we take it to the bank. We build another barn, get another boat. We add this and this and this to our, our list of things and we have these bucket lists of things we want to do and travel the world and sail the seven seas before we settle down in our responsible young person and adult in the kingdom of heaven. We like being in this world and the uh, not of the world part of being a Christian and a Reformed Christian. We, we, we kind of leave that for Sunday. But in this world, we can thrive. And the Bible says we plunder the Egyptians and they're here to, the reprobate are here to serve the elect. I've heard somebody say that so flippantly it made my hair stand on end. Not flippantly do we say, beloved, that the reprobates serve the elect. They do. But we're not gleeful about it. It's true, though. Everything works together for good. And every one and every insect, we've seen that in the whole world that came down, crashing upon the heads of the Egyptians. Every hailstone, every darkness of night, a darkness so thick you could cut it, work together for the bad of the Egyptians and for the good of the people of God and their exodus. And that's what God does with us. And we forget that. And we like Egypt. And we act as if we're just wandering around in the wilderness when really we're already in the promised land. That's the kingdom of heaven. We're not in heaven, but we're there almost, aren't we? Just almost. In principle, we say. In church, you can get a foretaste of this. There's something of heaven. When we worship God, this is where you want to be for the solemnity, the dignity, and the joy of the gospel among the elect saints and their children. Because we know the exodus of Jesus. We know that lamb whose blood is shed for us. We're given faith truly to believe that. So, beloved, where are you? Where are we? We, we? we think we're back in Egypt sometimes and we get caught. And the plunder of Egypt is like dragging us so that we cannot progress as pilgrims who ought to be progressing should do. Sometimes we are so silly about our faith, we actually think that there's, there's no conflict whatsoever and we hardly move forward because we're just out of touch with reality. And we don't work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We're, we're too busy to go to the club to work out and get our bodies buff. Beloved, where are you? Where am I? We're just eating and drinking some thing, some holy thing called the sacrament that represents Jesus, and through this, Jesus has fed us. He's been here, and here now in his word. Where, where are we? Are we in Egypt? 
We think we're in heaven. Are we, are we in the wilderness, hopelessly lost and complaining? Well, beloved, if we ask the question, and as we do, and we should, here's what we need to say right away. People of the Exodus, we, don't, we know this. Wherever we are, we're in Christ. In Christ. Now, why do we know that? Because the Bible says so. Why do we know that? Our faith convicts us that we're in Christ. And frankly, it doesn't matter then where we're at. If we're in Christ, vibrantly in Christ, close by Jesus, abiding in him as he says we must, abiding in the vine. Well then, beloved, Egypt will be further and further in our rearview mirror. Even as we leave Egypt, there's only one way, it's out of Egypt. And even as God works to get us rid of Egypt, that's inside. In the rearview mirror, and we're looking forward, and we're progressing, and we're growing, even though a small beginning is all we have, all the way to the promised land. Is that your joy? Going all the way to the promised land. Leaving the things of this world. Not debating with just how much of the world you can have. But longing for how much of Jesus you can have. To serve him in purity and glory, the glory of heaven. That will be the greatest thing for now. Let's keep the feast and march on. Amen. We pray, Father, that you would bless the word we've preached and heard, the sacred moment which you connect with our hearts and talk to us in our lives may not be lost upon us. Grant your spirit Fill our hearts with faith, joy, humility, grace, receptivity, learning ability, which might never have been before except you work now tonight. Say, yes, this is what you need to learn, the way you should go. Lord, we pray to be able to identify the difference between ourselves and Egypt and things below and things of heaven. Teach us the gospel lessons all the week. Bless this flock, dear people of God, full of cares and worries, full of joy, though, full of the Holy Ghost and fruitfulness. This we know together, for God is in the midst, a pillar of Jesus, cloud of glory of Jesus, the fire of the Spirit of Christ leading us on. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.